Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Gary, uh, in the news, uh, I've been interested in uh, some of the writing of uh, Davy Alba at the New York Times, mm-hmm. uh, and he did this report uh, that underscores some activity that you and I have actually seen in the sense that uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, uh, testified before Congress back in uh, April of 2018 uh, that Facebook had this ambitious plan and that they were going to get their arms around uh, you know, fake sites and whatnot. And they've actually dumped some fake sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that they were going to get the world's top researchers to study uh, and flags kind of disinformation uh, on Facebook. Uh, but those plans now seem to have fallen short. And indeed, what Alba's reporting is that seven nonprofit groups who were helping to fund the research and supporting the research in various ways have recently threatened to back out, including the Knight Foundation. And this all goes back to uh, the fact that, you know, Facebook is kind of caught in the middle of trying to sort user privacy issues versus sharing the necessary information yes. with researchers uh, to enable this work. Um, and and it's, uh, it's, it's interesting from the perspective of not only weeding out fake news and disinformation, but it's also interesting in terms of executive communications and you have a, a leader sort of staking out something yeah. and who is calling him to task, but the news media and others as opposed to him having some sort of periodic report as to what they're able to do and not do. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it again shows the magnitude, the huge challenge that Facebook has. Mm-hmm. Uh, both on its basic business model in a lot of ways, but the amount of disinformation and the way it's disguised. Yeah. And um, I was reading this morning, um, I get a blog every morning or a couple times a week, I guess, from something called Popular Information. Popular.info mm. is the website. And um, it's about this web uh, Facebook page, Police Lives Matter, and it's a reaction allegedly from U.S. police officers and and cops posting about um, their lives and what they do for society, et cetera. And in juxtaposition to Black Lives Matter. Exactly, exactly. And here's the the thing, totally fake. Yeah. Um, uh, You know, based out of Kosovo, apparently, Mm -hmm. is where Mm -hmm. this farm is that's spreading. And presumably intended to incense maybe people in urban communities that have have witnessed police shootings. Exactly. So, and... And so it's not overtly political from a Trump standpoint or a Democratic standpoint, mm-hmm. but it certainly does. It, it, it is, um, uh, you know, provocative about yeah. um, the black as a, a counter position to Black Lives Matter. And here's what struck me, um, Mike, about this is uh, they have uh, as much engagement, uh, you know, more than uh, Huffington Post politics, 2.3 million likes, shares, and comments. Amazing. Over, over the last 30 days, and you go down, and HuffPost politics is about half that. Vox is, uh, you know, a fraction, small fraction, Bloomberg, et cetera. So 
the the existence of this Facebook network out of Kosovo uh, with misinformation on a disinformation uh, just shows what Zuckerberg is facing. Yeah. And, and maybe they need to be a little more realistic and, and transparent about the the challenge yeah and communicating along the way to the, both their partners and to the public right? yeah yeah well and, and in fact one of the lessons i've learned in any kind of crisis situation mm-hmm. is when you when you're at the point of putting out your plan mm-hmm. uh, you need to think about what are the next steps and when do i best inform yes. Uh, the key publics uh, so that uh, everything is on my terms as opposed to being uh, dictated by news stories. Yeah. And by the way, to Facebook's credit, and I know Nick Clegg's there and runs their communications and public affairs, really smart guy. When this blogger, journalist uh, at popular.info, popular information, let them know about this police life, they took it down. That, that's terrific. Right. So, and, yeah. and, and I've read several of those where yeah. this particular journalist has has been following this uh, issue with Facebook and, and they've reacted really quickly. Yeah, yeah. well, and then talking about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and, and, and promises and whether promises are kept and follow through, uh, this is a tough, tough <laughs> week this past week for CEOs. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we saw, uh, was it WeWorks, we saw Volkswagen, yeah. we saw lots of different eBay. CEOs in the eBay, yeah. uh, you know, with lots of different uh, things in the news and, and very few of them good. Yeah. And, and it just goes to show you is that um, we've talked a lot about purpose mm-hmm. and, and social value but basically, if you're not going to deliver, there's a very short mm-hmm. um, sort of, uh, you know, leash on, on CEOs these days. And and if you look at all different reasons. The WeWork was a failed IPO and right. some behavior um, by the CEO, I guess. And VW, of course, there was an indictment uh, mm-hmm. or charges brought. Mm-hmm. eBay, I think, was a performance issue. Mm-hmm. But the, the job of CEO is just getting harder and harder. Yeah. And uh, it, it um, is inextricably linked, mm-hmm. in my view, with the gap in expectations, both socially and financially, and yeah. however you want to do it, yeah. say it. And uh, the idea that, you know, I worked for two CEOs at GE, one was there 20 years, one was there 16 years. Yeah. And the idea that those kinds of runs are going to be um, I think they're made difficult because, yeah, exactly. y- you know, you have more exposure on uh, on pay issues yep. than ever before, particularly with the new SEC yes. requirements. Uh, you, with social media, with more access to information, uh, we're seeing CEOs and other executives taken on uh, in social media and by various uh, stakeholder groups. Uh, we've seen, you know, we've talked about it on, on the podcast yeah. about uh, employees, particularly you know, uh, millennial and Gen Z employees deciding to take issues into their own hands and stage walkouts. Right. Uh, it's a it, it's a much more complex and uh, and dynamic and challenging time. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen <laughs> this kind of wreckage on the side of the CEO highway yeah. in one week than than the past week. Yeah. yeah. The the other people that seem to take it on the chin maybe a little bit in in recent weeks. Uh, has been some of our world leaders um, and in, in, in various ways. Um, 
And, and, you know, we had done a show where we talked a little bit on the front end about the shootings in El Paso and mm-hmm. Odessa and at some other places and talked about the impact on children. And we talked about the communications about those that are seeking uh, uh, gun reform and what they might need to do. We both sort of gave into this notion or bought into the notion that one of the things that needed to do, that they would need to do, is show the impact on young people. And we have this incredible um, PSA that was created uh, by BBDO uh, for the Sandy Hook Promise, where they set it up uh, mm-hmm. as sort of a, a back-to-school ad. Mm-hmm. It's almost like watching you know, a Target or a Macy's ad for back-to-school, right, right. except you realize that uh, sort of 10 seconds into it, that they're buying the tennis shoes in order to run from an assailant, that they're buying pencils in order to stab the assailant in the neck uh, and and, and so on. And it really brings it home uh, as the spot closes, the message both on the screen and verbally says it's back to school time and you know what that means. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Wow, wow, it's powerful. Yeah. And and all credit to BBDO and, and the great people there. But essentially, they're trying to sear consciences, you know, in Congress. And then this past, you know, as as leading up to U.N. week, we saw an actual young person try to sear the consciousness of uh, world leaders, uh, first helping to stage this Friday for the Future, where massive walkouts, literally uh, tens of millions of young people throughout the world in more than 100 major cities across the globe, literally cutting out of school. Yes. I used to get in trouble, by the, by the way, for that sort of <laughs> well, thing. Well, you weren't protesting <laughs> climate change. Like, okay. Uh, and then, uh, so, so anyway, an incredible voice and then sort of scolding world leaders the following week at, at the UN that Ex- they need to do more. Exactly. Greta Thunberg, I think yeah. that's how you say her name. Yeah. What a remarkable 16-year-old. And, and how sophisticated, Mike, right, which is, so in the past, you know, if somebody came into New York or they went to Davos, Al Gore, let's say, you know, and, and the argument against them was, you know, Mr. Gore, you flew here in a private jet in your carbon footprint just to get here to talk about climate change. Was So she sailed. Right. For two weeks to get yeah. to the yeah, U.S. Yeah. Not even, not even, uh, not even, you know, it wasn't like one of these luxury exactly. liners. She, had, she was on a sailboat. Totally. You know, and the sailboat, even the navigation system was powered by, by solar. Solar, yeah. So, so very, I don't know if somebody's advising her, but if they are, they're very good. So, so that she could focus on the meat of the issue, on the real issue, not these side issues that some deniers, and that's what I call people in climate change because the science is clear, um, you know, want to talk about. And unfortunately, uh, you know, st- some people still want to go there. And, and one of the folks on Fox News, and I, I, just, I don't do He was this. a guest. He was, was a guest, guest yeah. yeah. None of this matters because the climate hysteria mov- movement is not about science. About If we, it were about science, it would be led by scientists rather than by politicians and a mentally ill Swedish child, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and, and she has Asperger's, which right. you know, sort of accentuates yep. the slur here. Yeah. And the guy's name is, is Michael Knowles. He's a conservative political commentator, has his own podcast. Yes, yeah, and, and so, so 
and she just brushed it off. Yeah. I, I, you know, she brushed it off. She showed she showed more class than many a politician. Exactly. Today. So look, you know, she's. We see more and more of these the Parkland kids, mm. Mike. We've talked about yep. previously. Yep. Uh, the, the Newtown. Um, this generation is really focused, and they're really good. Yeah, it inspires me, and it inspires me as as well too. Now, speaking of inspi- inspiring, I know you're going to, you know, talk about something next that uh, where I may have missed the mark, Mike, on the you know the Yankees. Well, and- <laughs> you know, uh, don't want to say I told you so, uh, but so Gary and I are uh, two Yankee fans. No, scratch that. We're two. Big yes, Yankee yes. fans in Beantown, yeah. uh, which can be dangerous on Very certain lonely days. Here. Yes, um, and, and and I remember, you know, when the Red Sox won last year, I was I, the I was actually staying in an apartment down near Fenway, right? And people took to the streets. The game wasn't yep. played here; it was no, in LA, it, yeah. it was pe- played out in L.A. Uh, but in the in the chants from the crowd, you know, they didn't they they didn't go on and on about. The Red Sox, they were they were shouting they were shouting down you know uh, obscenities Yankees. about the Yanks. Yeah, I mean yeah. they they we're weren't even playing head. the Yanks; we're they were playing head. the Dodgers. <laughs> you know, so so anyway, uh, but as a, as a consequence, towards the beginning of the season, yeah. you and I talked about you know Major League Baseball. Our our team had lots of injuries. Oh, you know, I, I mean literally before the start of the season. Uh, you had uh, Aaron Judge was out, yeah. Stanton was out, uh, you know. Uh, the whole team, essentially. Uh, yeah, Severino. I mean, yeah. they went on to have a record number yeah. of players placed on the injury list. Yeah. It's like something like 30 players. Yeah. Uh, and normally that happens to a team and it, you know, both figuratively and literally cripples them. Yes. And anyway, with what was happening early on, you smartly, and I think it was the smart choice. Thank you, Mike. Is is that you said they're going to be lucky to make the playoffs. They're going to be lucky to win 90 <laughs> games. And yet you even gave, I, I don't remember the number, but it was 90-something. 90 96 or something like that, yeah, 93. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then you said, okay, Mike, what do you think? Yeah. And, and I said, well, they won 100 games last year. They showed some resilience. I'm going to re- Really go out on a limb, yeah. and, and it's probably not going to be true. And I'm going to say 103. How many games did they uh, win? Uh, let me check. Let me just check here on my. Bu- yeah, it's a it's 103. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I or this is a very painful segment for me. <laughs> I, I I have to. I'm bowing down to, to uh, Mike. Is is and it, it is a remarkable story and a great prediction by you. Now we get into the playoffs. So. So uh, let's put you know the past behind us. What's your because you know that's, what what do you think here? Are you gonna, they going to make a run or it's going to be tough? Yeah, it's going to be tough. I, I I my sense is they'll get by the twins. Yeah, and, and that won't be. I'll be surprised if it's like three straight. Right, right. Um, and they'll tussle with the Astros, but the Astros are really, yeah. really yeah. good. And, and, and what's interesting is the Astros closed out so strongly. Yes. Um, the Astros look like the real deal. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I now, think you're right. I could be totally wrong. I've been wrong before. Yeah, but not recently. <laughs> 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 all right, all right. So uh, I'm going to take the Yankees over the Twins, uh, but I do think it's going to be five games because uh-huh. the Twins can hit. Yeah. And In fact, they battled for the home run you totally. know, record, and the Twins beat them by one home by, run. By one home run. 
And then I do think the Astros, um, just because of the pitching, the starting pitching is mm -hmm. just on Well, the and that might be the saving grace on the National League side. You know, the L.A. Dodgers, they could be back. Right. And they've got pitching. Yeah. You know, they, 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 you know they're not the hitters that the Twins, the Yanks, or the Astros exactly. are. Yeah. But they have pitching. Yes. Okay. So that's the sports segment of the crux this week. <laughs> And Mike, you want to close out with one thing that you and I both have experienced. Well, well, you and I have been, you know, we, we've traveled a lot, and our jobs have required us to travel a lot. At one point, I think I counted when I was at Cargill that my passport had been stamped in more than fifty countries yeah, yeah, in yeah. a six-year period, and so that was a lot of frequent flyer miles. But it was also a lot of flying, listening to babies screaming. Yes, and I saw this story about the fact that Japan Airlines now has a way in which you can go online and the booking tool literally shows little faces <laughs> for where babies are potentially <laughs> sitting and you can decide, nope, that's not where I want to sit. Wow. Put me five rows or ten rows or maybe on the other side of the plane uh, from that little one. Um, are these babies in an age sense or just people who are babies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes I've seen those on flights, too. But, you know, and, and the real challenge will be, you know, is, is that, you know, are there babies strategically placed Egg. just to drive people crazy? <laughs> uh, do they do do they charge you more by the distance you, you move away from, from a, a baby? baby? Exactly. You know, they're, they're, I mean, airlines are always looking for another dollar, another nickel that they can charge us to do things. Well, it's it's you know, it's just another sign that, man, you know what data can do and how you know this this idea that you can you know you, before you got on an airplane and it was catch as catch can right. And uh, so I, Japan Air, I'd say all the power to them. I think it's a great move. Yeah, and, yeah. and I'm going to Australia in, in about a month. And so I'm going to be uh, lobbying. I don't, I don't know where we're, who we're flying, but, boy, if I could find a baby map, I'd be all in. Yeah, I, I I have to plead guilty. Probably one of my grandkids will be on the plane. It's cause you misery. <laughs> Welcome to The Crux. This is Gary Sheffer. I'm here with uh, Mike Fernandez, my partner, and our great studio uh, assistants here from Boston University, Kenneth and Jess, and we're in the luxurious Crux Studios here All at right. Boston University. So, a great show today. Our guest is Amory Squayo. She's the SVP and Chief Communications and Brand Officer at Xerox, and she started that in March of this year. And Amory oversees all aspects of global communications and marketing, which is a big remit. I'm going to talk to her a bit, little bit about that. We're also going to talk about her focus on driving greater understanding about Xerox's transition from digital to physical and how Xerox hopes that leads to disruption in existing and new markets. Uh, Anne-Marie is, is a star. She's uh, been in senior communications roles at IBM, Lockheed Martin, Netflix, and Raytheon, and what you may not know about her is that she spent 15 years as a highly respected business journalist at the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. And uh, during her time at the Journal, she was part of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2000. I think, Anne-Marie, that was for stories about U.S. defense spending. And the Gerald yep. Yep, Loeb Award, 
which uh, in 2004, which is the highest, you may not have heard of it, but it's a really uh, important award in business journalism in 2004. And as I recall, that was about troubles at Boeing. Surprise. Yeah. Um, so It was, <laughs> and there's a lot of <laughs> parallels today. Well, <laughs> Anne-Marie, welcome to the crux. And uh, Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, so now you've been in the job since March, and I, I, I saw you quoted as saying Xerox is an iconic global brand at an important crossroads. What, what did you mean when, uh, when you said that? Yeah, I mean, so I think I said that when I first started back yeah. in March, and, and that was really the, the allure of the opportunity to, to come here, was that the company is in the midst of, and, and you know, as somebody put it during my interviews, we're probably at the top of the second inning. So maybe now we're at the bottom of the second, <laughs> top of the third, but a, a major transformation, perhaps the biggest in the company's history. And, you know, I think most people know Xerox as the copy company or the printer company. And while that's that's still a major component of our business. We're also expanding in the content management business and services sectors and and really getting back to our innovation roots when it comes to things like AI and 3D. So, I mean, what's really exciting about Xerox is that this company has long defined the modern work experience, whether it was the Xerograph or a graphical user interface or even the PCs that DARPA used when they invented Mm -hmm. the internet. And, and we're really focused on doing it again, and that makes this job a really exciting one at this time. Let me build on that a little bit, because some of what I understand is, first of all, this is like the first coming together of mm-hmm. both communications and marketing uh, for Xerox. Uh, you're also part of the executive committee, and you've so, so they've really elevated the function. How important is that as you go about redefining Xerox's future. Oh my God, it's so important. Um, and I, I really credit that to our CEO, John Visentine, because he sees and saw the need for this role to be a direct report to him and to have a seat at the table when decisions are being made. Um, and we, we had extensive conversations about that during my interview process, because as any of us who've been in the comms and marketing world know the hardest thing you can do is get the order after the decision's been made right. and and you know in your heart of hearts there's no way to put lipstick on this pig right it's hard to be um, the order taker i mean that that's it it's really really hard and so i think i mean that's that's part of what's been really invigorating about this role is I'm in the meetings where things are getting discussed, and I'm not there just as the the person who heads the brand team. I'm there as a business person who's expected to understand the uh, the landscape and our competitive set and all of that, and and make uh, ask questions and make contributions to that discussion and those decisions. So it makes it a lot easier to get things done, right? So we're in the middle of this big. transformation. We need to move quickly um, to do things. um, And that means that you kind of have to have a seat at the table, right? Or Mm -hmm. you're going to forever be trying to sell every little, Mm -hmm. you know, minutia that you're moving forward. So it's, um, it's been great. I mean, the other thing that's really exciting about having marketing and communications is that you know, the, the distinctions between the two disciplines have really blurred. And, and, and I would say they've almost collapsed as mm-hmm. a result of yes. the Internet and social media. 
And the expectations for marketing have been raised in a world where facts and stories are the things that are going to have the greater relevance, right? A flashy campaign that doesn't have real substance is not going to get you very far. So, you know, the opportunity to break through the noise with compelling content, whether it's for an employee audience or for an advertising audience, is enormous, right? And right. and for me as a former journalist, like that's my happy place. Yeah, exactly. So really driving that understanding through our entire team and even through the broader Xerox is is a big part of my job right now. So so how are the teams reacting to this? Because um, in in my last CCO role, I had both marketing and communications as well. And in the early stages, you know, these were like two separate houses or they almost could be two separate companies and trying to get everybody to play in the sandbox and to play, you know, focused because I, I really buy into the notion that, uh, you know, the tools of the trade are very similar. The nature of what we do is very similar. And indeed, if they work hand in glove, uh, it can be spectacular because then you you move into a different space where it's not just about cute and clever. It's about doing something that's, that's strategic, that transforms relationships, and that builds new business opportunities. Uh, so, so how are the teams reacting, and were there changes that you had to institute in order to get everybody to play nice in the sandbox? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the teams here are just incredibly nice people. So they they were already playing nice in the sandbox to a certain extent. But what what needed to really change and what I've been focused on over the last six months in this role is making sure that we have a strategy for everything that we're doing, yeah. that it ladders up to our very clearly established objectives. Um, and that we're not in the role of order taking, right? Because right. that may make you feel good in the moment, um, like a cheeseburger, but it's not nutritional over the long <laughs> term, right? And so it's not really going to help us drive a great, greater brand awareness and have people understand our relevance in society today and tomorrow. So, so really kind of pushing this kind of, let's start, you know, I worked for Pam Wickham at uh -huh. Raytheon oh, when yeah. I first started. And, and Pam's big thing, and, and I'll give her credit for this because I continue to use it, was you should always have the process be think, plan, do, assess. Mm -hmm. And so I think that a lot of times what you find, whether it's marketing or communications, is we start at the do, mm -hmm. and then we don't always assess. Right. And so really trying to get people to go back to the think, like mm -hmm. why are we doing this? And if we don't really know why we're doing it, then let's not do it. Um, and then making sure that every part of it, like so if we're making an announcement, you know, do we have a full 360 plan around that on the marketing side, on the social side, on the employee side, on the executive side? I mean, how do we make sure that we get the biggest bang for the buck for those announcements? And then, you know, the execution has to be flawless, and then you have to go back and measure it. So, you know, we know what we did well and we know what we didn't do well and we want to do better the next time. So that kind of rigor, I think, has been a big shift for the team uh, since I've been here. And, and initially it was it was hard. I'm not going to lie, it was harder. Yeah. But I feel like now we're, we're starting to get the, the machinery is working and the wheels are turning in the same direction. And I think people are starting to get really excited. So, I mean, we're about to roll out a campaign, which I won't go into a lot of details on, but it's come together in under two weeks. Wow. 
That's something that was World unheard record. of yes. here before. <laughs> and it's not like huge, right? And it's pretty targeted. But the idea that we could ha- go from idea to rollout in two weeks was an anathema. And and I think as we experienced, this is not the first time we've done that since I've been here. So I think people are starting to get like, oh, these like little wins, like, Oh, yeah, wow. this is kind of energizing. Um, so slowly, I think, I hope, I'm winning them over. Terrific. Well, I'm sure you are. And and by the way, Pam Wickham was a colleague of mine at GE. So, Anne-Marie, as you listen to the— Maybe you taught her that, Gary. Well, I don't know. Did you, did you well, let's, plan do with us? let's just say that I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's—I'll take it. I'll take it. Pam is brilliant. Pam is one of my favorite people in the world and so smart. So along these lines of what you've just been talking about, you know, there's a lot of CCOs out there who are, you know, listening, who, you know, take on new jobs. So did you set out like, you know, presidents have 100 day plans and that kind of thing. Did you set out something? I want to get this done in the first six months on the job. It's been since March. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to ask this is I just read something in HBR about uh, the benefits of making decisions slowly. Right. That, you know, it gives you time to really dig deep. So how did you balance that with the, you know, the drive for change at Xerox and wanting to do a complete and full assessment of what what the job was? Yeah. And I I think um, I I read the article that uh, you're mentioning as well. And, And it's interesting because we were both just at the Page Society annual meeting and a lot of our colleagues were up on stage presenting plans and initiatives that they had underway for five years or four years before they came to fruition. And I was thinking, like, wow, what a luxury (laughs) um, to have that much time because, you know, I think when you have uh, two activist shareholders in your stock, um, you don't have that much time to, to make an impact. And, you know, that's part of what excited me about this job because I knew that there was a change mandate and that's something that I really enjoy and I think I'm really good at the change aspects of these things so you know I think for me I've tried to do it both right Mm -hmm. I I think I've tried to move slowly enough so that people can start to get to know me and how I think and I try to be over explain things Mm -hmm. so that I'm trying to take people with me at the same time as I'm nudging us Mm -hmm. to move much faster and thinking differently. So I did have a plan. Mm-hmm. I did have a 30, 60, 90 plan yeah. that I put into place. And I would say I hit almost every point in that plan except for developing the full marketing and communication strategy because I still wasn't able to fully assess mm-hmm. the marketing side of the house as quickly as I was able to assess the communications mm-hmm. side of the house. Interesting. So it kind of slowed me down, and I wanted it to be one plan. Right. Um, I didn't want everyone going out with two totally different plans. Yes, there's always going to be different things on the comp side when it comes to employees or crisis communications or things of that sort. Um, but I want, and, and what we are building now for 2020, so the good news is I've caught up on this, right. uh, is one brand strategy for employee earned and owned uh, You know, for mm-hmm. 2020. And then we'll build out the the tactics behind each of those strategies, you know, together as a team. But the idea is really to have that cohesiveness. So 
I think it's hard, right? I think a lot of times you come into a company and and it's bad to break things. And so what I've tried to do is push and step back and then push and step back and, and also observe people and how they think so that I can better assess, okay, is this the right job for them? Should, would they be better in this other job? Maybe they wouldn't be better in any job. I mean, and you don't really know that stuff until you until you're come there. in and start getting to yes. know people. And I, I think you know, sometimes, Mike, people when they're recruiting uh, people like Anne-Marie, either the CEO or the recruiter or whomever, say, I want you to come here and break some glass. Right. Right? And then you start breaking glass, and they go, mm, I didn't really mean that much glass. <laughs> that's right. That's right. No, no having gone through lots <laughs> right, of transitions exactly. myself, I mean, it, 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 it is interesting sort of how people, def- by definition, yeah. begin to tackle these things. And what's interesting, I, I mean, you said you, you came into a hard or difficult situation. I actually think you came into a harder than yeah. hard yeah, exactly. situation. Situation. Uh, for, for our listeners, I mean, the, the company went through a major proxy fight. Uh, you know, seats on, on the board have, have, have people who are activists. Uh, in addition, not only are you new, the CEO is yeah, new. Yeah. Um, and that's difficult, and especially difficult. You know, you've got a workforce. They've got to stay focused. And at the same time, not only focused on what they're doing, but focused on, gee, we need to change because we're really feeling the, the pains of who we are today and where we want to be in the future. What I'm really curious, because I think what's really super essential in the space that you're operating in is that thought about the connection with employees and how are you engaging their hearts and minds in order uh, to support the strategy for Xerox as you move forward. Yeah, I mean, I'll get to that in one second. I wanted to hit on another point you made. You know, the interesting thing, having worked in a number of different companies, um, when you think about the change in leadership team, right, you mentioned that Mm -hmm. the CEO is new, and actually probably 85% of the executive committee Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, reports up to him and the president are new. Wow. So it's not just yeah. he and I, it's it's a lot of us. And so that that was part of the allure, right? Because again, it gets back to that notion of a change mandate. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to be brought into a company and told by a CEO, as you rightly point out, Gary, look, break some glass. But everybody who reports to that CEO has been with the company for 35 <laughs> or 40 years exactly. and is conditioned to have a a job, a chair, I should say, when the music stops, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's much harder to make change in that environment than it is in this environment um, because we're all here Mm -hmm. with the very clear um, mandate to save Xerox. Right. Um, And when when that kind of clarity is front of in front of your face every day then um, you make decisions that are in the best interest of the business and you were able to move much faster. So I will say that in some respects, it seems harder, but I've actually found it to be Interesting. easier yeah. mm-hmm. um, than, than you might have imagined. Now, employees are huge in this, and I think that for us, it's a big challenge, and it's one that I am working very hard on. I mean, our employees have been through a lot, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just the last two years with the proxy battle mm-hmm. over the Fuji acquisition. So right. It yeah. was going on for years yeah. before that. 
Um, so, I mean, to them, I, I, I understand this notion of, you know, who are these Johnny-come-latelys, and, <laughs> you know, why should we believe them over all the other people who came before them and told me a story that didn't turn out to be true? So a, a lot of work, I mean, we know this, and we're trying to make tracks on this, but it's going to be a longer-term thing, right? We have to do work to rebuild their trust. And and there and that, a lot of that is going to come down to transparency, right? So I'm I'm a big believer in the notion of if if you lead, you have to have followers. To have followers, they have to trust you, and to trust you, they have to know you. Exactly. Yeah. And, well put. You know, really helping our leadership team and even myself in my leadership role be transparent, be human. Uh, help people understand my background, who I am, so that they can trust me, that I'm going to make decisions that are in the best interest of the business. And if it turns out that that decision may not be in the best interest of that particular person, I'm going to handle it respectfully and transparently so that they're not hearing it from somebody else or through the grapevine or things like that. But as the broader employee base is concerned, I mean, we're doing a number of things. I mean, we've been focused for the last couple of months on developing our purpose and our mission mm -hmm. and our brand positioning. And, you know, while that's got a broader um, remit, the purpose and the mission are incredibly focused on our employees, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea that they need to know why they're working this hard yes. for right. this leadership team at this moment in time. So, so that's a big part of it. We're improving the tools that we use. Um, we're about to launch a totally new uh, hub for employees mm -hmm. so that it's that's much great. more compelling than the one that we've been using. And, and I'm trying with every communication we do to be super transparent. So yeah. I'm always arguing for more transparency <laughs> yep. than less because we all know in today's society, this stuff always gets out. And it either can get out because you told people or it will get out because yeah. somebody else told people and you're probably not going to like their version. That's well, right. I, I, love your, I love your answer too. And I, I quickly, I just add that I think empathy, acting with empathy yeah. and being empathetic oh, is, huge. is the most underrated leadership quality today. Yeah. And if you do that, that's how you build trust and you know get discretionary effort from people, et cetera. Yeah. I, I just think it's it's something we need to talk yeah. about more. Yeah. Well, and the other element off of that is being in an environment where you show as opposed to tell. Exactly. You know, people need to get the cues of what what you need them to know, what you need them to feel, yeah. and what you need them to do. But it really comes back to showing them rather than telling them. And that brings me to a, another question, Emery, and, and, and that is, as a former journalist, you come into this, and one of the great things that that experience brings is the ability to tell a story. And storytelling becomes, I think, critically important in moving employees, but also moving external audiences as well. So I'd be interested in what changes you've made to tell the Xerox story in a more integrated uh, way. Mike, you're just playing to me now. <laughs> you know I love this topic. I do know some of your team I, members. Oh, here we go. I can tell. Mike, Mike knows so, everybody. Here we Okay. Go ahead, Emery. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's obviously near and dear to my heart. And, and the thing about storytelling is it's a little bit like a sense of humor. Most people think they're funny, and they're not. And... <laughs> 
Most people think they tell great stories. Is that a message don't. for? Is that a message for me? By the way, Emery, keep going. I'm sorry. Not intended to be personal at all, but I think often what you find inside of companies, especially companies like Xerox, where you know the teams have been probably doing this for a long time and have kind of you know used to using a muscle in a certain way, I would say, is that they tell stories that they want to tell, yeah. but not stories anyone wants to hear. <laughs> and, and and that's actually a huge difference, right? Yes, I mean, absolutely. like, so, I mean, we used to say this in the newsroom all the time, like, don't fall in love with your own words. Don't right. fall in love with your own stories. Um, and I think that's the kind of message that I've been driving here. So last week, for example, uh, so I'm teaching people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really think that there's like no shortage of great stories at Xerox about our people, our technology, um, and and even our customers. Um, mm -hmm. There's just incredible yes. stories. I see them everywhere, and yet we're not telling them, but we're starting to. And I think um, a couple of things that we did here and or you know last week i had um john brecher and i don't know if you both know him but he's the former front page editor of the wall street journal most Ooh. people know him as the guy who wrote the wine column with his <laughs> wife Dottie <laughs> gator right so he i had him come in at ibm too for two sessions but so i've got john back on the books and he came in and did an all-day storytelling nice seminar with my team here at headquarters in Connecticut and then the next couple of weeks he's going to be going up to the Rochester area and then over to the UK where I also have a lot of people and it was an all-day thing I told people just he's going to teach you the elements of great story he is a master storyteller he brought the paper he was part of the papers eight Pulitzer wins uh, when he was on the front page so the team here loved it. It's a total bet. investment in them. Mm -hmm. And they left with this, you know, enthusiasm sure. for finding and telling great stories. So today on our internal um, intranet, I noticed there are like three new stories up that are really compelling. And, you know, we rolled out a story about the tennis ball and the unique color of the tennis ball right around the U.S. Open. And this was a full court press on the marketing and the comm side. Um, but we really took a look at the the color, which is mm -hmm. optic yellow. But there's a huge debate around the color because two-thirds of people think the color is yellow. One-third think it's green. So we hmm. did a Twitter poll, which, you know, found that to, can still be true. People see green in that ball. I, I don't, but many do, apparently. And And then we told the unique history of the ball and the color because it actually changed color because of the advent of color television. So we created this super compelling digital first campaign that started with this Twitter poll. Is it green or is it yellow? And, and tied back to the fact that, you know, we're the only ones who can print that color. Huh. Interesting. So that's... we're really starting this whole color campaign and we've got another one that's coming out next week and three more in the hopper after it. When stop talking about the printer and start talking about the things it can do, but in a way that's super interesting, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's, people are starting, again, we did that color, the tennis ball video was a two week effort, um, in large part because I've hired three former journalists who are now in here, you know, cranking out great stories and helping the rest of the team see great stories and taking them along with them. So, 
I, I, I'm excited about what the potential is because everybody who walked out of the seminar with John Brecher last week was drunk on the idea of telling great stories. Well, and we've also created. He was an the wine editor, Anne Marie. He was the wine editor, and he did so give they would them be wine drunk. recommendations. Um, so I think they really enjoyed that part. He had a white Bordeaux, especially that he recommended. Oh, good, um, good, good. That's great. But it, I think that it's it's a it's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Social is where the action is. You got to tell stories on social, and you have to know that everybody else is out there doing the same thing. Oh. So how are you going to break through the noise? Well, I, I'd love to take that course myself. Really, I seriously, I just can't get enough of of storytelling and storytellers. So so I, I'm yeah. always curious, Andrea, I went from journalism to politics, you know, political communications and then in the corporate world. So you went from the top of the business journalism world into some really interesting jobs and companies. What was the what was the hardest thing about making that transition and what surprised you the most going from journalism cuz a lot of people are today going from journalism to in-house? Yeah, and I think it's, um, I would say I didn't find the work to be hard. I found the um, the acclimation mm-hmm, to be right. challenging. Yeah. Um, because I, I think, in, and you'll remember from your days in the newsroom, Gary, I mean, life in the newsroom is rather dynamic. Yes. And, you know, for all the all the egos that might be at play, I mean, everyone's sort of talking over each other and has 30 ideas, and it's, it's a really um, invigorating environment, and nobody really gets too bent around the axle if, if you say, like, no, that idea is not that great, but what if we did this, right? But you can't really do that in corporate America, right. I found. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I mean, one of the things that I learned early on was that, you know, you had to take the time to bring people along, yes. and you had to build those trusted so relationships so that people understood that just because you didn't think their idea was great, that it doesn't mean that they're not great, mm-hmm. right? Like, you can have a bad idea and still be great. Right. Um, we all do that every day, right? <laughs> like, so That's I think that sure. was part of what I had had to learn over the time was just that my, my colleagues were very different, if, especially if they grew up in a corporate environment where everything was rather measured and controlled mm-hmm. than than my sort of fluid way of thinking right. uh, needed to be different. Well, that's so that, re- that was the biggest adjustment I had to make. Well, that's really good advice because they're like like you and with the folks you brought in, there are a lot of journalists who are making the transition. And that advice going from sort of a dynamic environment to something that's a little more linear yeah. uh, or a lot more linear in, in a lot of cases is, is really good advice. Uh, yeah, and you see that also in the transition from politics yes, to business yes. as well. There's a, there's a little bit of, you know, you're working on your own your story or you're working on this speech for the politician. You basically have audiences of one or limited <laughs> yeah. audiences that you have to please, and then you go to a corporation, and then all of a sudden you've got various business units, you've got other players in, in uh, various functional areas. Um, the other element from Well, your... you know, I would say one... Go ahead. Oh, go, go, go ahead, Mike. Go no, ahead. no, go ahead, Anne-Marie. No, I was going to say that, one, uh, you know, I think for those making the transition, though, it's important for them to hear the really positive side as well. Right. Um, and I think having a journalism background has made me super effective mm-hmm. in the corporate uh, absolutely. world. Absolutely. I completely agree. 
Yeah. And the reason was, Emery, for me, I'm sorry to step no, on no, you, no, but no. is asking questions, being curious and asking questions and being a quick study. Absolutely. From journalism. That was right, like I asked the questions that no one else in the room wants <laughs> That's to right, ask. Exactly. Right. Well, and, and everybody thinks and, they're walking on eggshells, right? Yeah. yeah. Right, but the thing is, like, if I've got a plan for crisis, mm-hmm. like, I'm going to have to know everything about this Absolutely. situation. Like, don't hold anything back, you, you know. And and I also think, um, as a journalist, when you're reporting stories, you, you spend a lot of time researching things, and then you have to go through the process of separating the wheat from the chaff. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, we have to do that inside, too. Absolutely. Right? Like, you know, everyone falls in love with, with their own ideas, their own products, their own words. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's not really going to fly. <laughs> um, and you have to be able to kind of figure out, like, what are the gems in each of those things mm-hmm. that we can put together to make this beautiful prosaic, right? We can't, we can't do it just because you said to do it this way because that's not going to sell. So you you play this vital role of um, funnel to the external world, but yep. you're also, you know, to use a, you know, in politic term, I mean, you've got to have a finely tuned BS detector yeah. to be able to kind of call BS on ourselves. Absolutely. That's, that, that's not going to help us in this situation, so let's not go there. And and I, I found it here. It's interesting because in many companies, the general counsel is not like that but here he's really finely attuned to this stuff too so we mm-hmm. inevitably land in the same place which is nice to not have to be at loggerheads with legal all the time yes yeah well and and, and the other thing I, I think one of the interesting things about the function is you play across all the other functional roles you also play across all the businesses so in a way you have a responsibility to call bullshit. Yes. You know, you have a responsibility to hold the mirror up to the organization and say, you know what, I, I understand that we feel this particular way or we've Absolutely. done it this particular way, but here's what other stakeholders are seeing. This is what they're hearing. Um, we need to be cognizant of that and act accordingly. That's the first time we've had a swear word on the crux, I think, too. Mike. Thank you for doing well, that. I, I mean, leave it to me to bring it out in people. There right? you go. There you go. There's You're, the New Yorker. <laughs> uh, well, well, you know, and then there's the other piece of this, and that is that, so as a former journalist uh, working in, in business, uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in, just because there seems to be a lot more uh, tension and a lot more fractured relationships between business reporters and corporate communicators mm-hmm. these days. Uh, you know, what's your take on that, and 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 how do you help, like your media relations bridge people, gap, sort yeah. of bridge that gap? Yeah, you know, I mean, and I've obviously lived on both sides of this world, yep. so it's really about the quality of the relationship. Absolutely. Um, and and it always has been. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that's. I don't think that's changed at all. I mean, any relationship you're in, whether it's with your spouse or a parent or a friend or a colleague, I mean, it's really about understanding. Mm-hmm. It's empathy, as Gary said earlier, and really understanding each person's needs and constraints, maybe mm-hmm. even today, right? So mm-hmm. today's journalists are being asked to serve, cover multiple beats, serve yeah. multiple mediums, um, and, you know, they're not necessarily getting raises, although, I mean, journalism is making a bit of a comeback um, because of the, finally, people are starting to figure out the internet model. 
But, I mean, there's a lot, right? They're, they have, mm-hmm. always have had a lot coming at them, and there's probably much more today than there was before. And then at the same time, companies are kind of, you know, demanding more coverage, and, and they're missing the reality that the content that we produce mm-hmm. is never going to look like the content that they produce, exactly. really, right? Like right. they have a different mandate, right. and it's not to make us look good That's all right. the time. And and I think that where the the fracture happens, Mike, is because they don't understand each other, right? Yeah. So I mean, it, like any relationship, you've got to invest in it, right? You've got to have coffee and lunch, uh, even when nothing's going on. When I was a reporter, I would regularly call my best sources. Yeah. If if they had a spouse in the hospital, I would call and be like, "Hey, mm-hmm. how's how's so and so doing? Mm-hmm. That's great. When is she coming home? Blah blah blah." Mm-hmm. And and that relationship was there. So when even when I was about to punch him in the nose mm-hmm. with a story, <laughs> yep. there was goodwill in the bank. Absolutely. They they knew that I was going to be fact-based, that if this was not an emotional yeah. uh, play for me, that this was just me doing my job. They weren't going to get surprised by it. They weren't going to like it. I mean, I remember walking down the aisle of a Ralph supermarket in California trying to talk to CEO off the ledge before a front-page story was going to run. I'm like, you're not going to like it. <laughs> I've walked your team through every exactly, piece right. of this story. I don't know what else to tell you except tell your board the Wall Street Journal is about to write a very negative story about the company. Right. But it's all fact-based. You know, that, that ultimately I went to go work for that company, um, and that guy <laughs> was one of the biggest reasons I went there. So, you, you know, to me that was a real boon because that showed that I had integrity because I don't think they would have hired somebody no, no matter what your journalistic pedigree is, if you didn't think that they had integrity. So I took that as a great honor that even despite all that, I was still ended up getting a job there. Yeah, now I think, you know, just to con- put a fine point or end point on this is where I see in in-house teams is they're not investing in these relationships right. with, with, with journalists. Well, I worry because of the technology. Everybody it, thinks it's so easy. Oh, I can just send a pitch, it, you know, it, via it, an email. It, and, exactly. And, and, it's, and, and, and you raise a very important point, Anne-Marie. It's, it's all about relationships. Exactly. Well, listen, this has been fantastic. Anne-Marie, thank you so much uh, yeah, for being, being on the crux. And, uh, you know, award-winning journalist and, and now uh, one of the leading uh, people in our profession in communication. So thank you for being on The Crux, and good luck in everything you're doing at Xerox. Thank you so much. It was really my pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.